welcome back to the Business of Primary Care podcast. This season, we will be discussing the ins and outs of value-based care. Before we get into today's show, let me introduce you to the guests on the episode. We kick it off with our host, Katila Farley, a registered nurse certified in value-based care, and Dr. John Hart, a BBC expert and author. We are also joined by guests Joni Wyatt, the Director Healthcare Advisory at CASU, Ren Keber, Principal at ECG Management Consultants, Lisa Soraka, founder of the Marblehead Group, Andrea Herto, Principal Consultant at Winston Healthcare Advisors, and Craig Worland, the COO of Southeast Primary Care Partners. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation on payer contracting. Welcome back to the Business of Primary Care podcast. Throughout season two, we've covered a lot of the foundational basics of value-based care so far from the perspectives of terminology, basic drivers, and how technology can assist. The last episode we did, we started getting into the weeds a bit on how to succeed in value-based care by looking at how to bring multimodal access into your practice. Okay, Dr. Hart, I have to stop us for just a second and say, Uh, multimodal sounds like a term we have to define. So um, I looked it up because I knew we were going to be talking about this. And um, it means having or involving several modes, modalities. Uh, I've just been hearing it as the buzzword recently. So I just wanted to call that out. Yeah. Thank you to Noah Webster for defining a term (laughs) with the term itself um, (laughs) using mode. Basically, what we're talking about in whether it's multi multimodal access or multimodal, now I'm going to trip over that all the time. Multimodal communication is using different methods to accomplish a similar uh, end, uh, mean, different means to accomplish a similar end. So, in in multimodal access, what we're talking about is the conventional walking through the front door of the practice, sitting in an exam room, and seeing a provider. But the other modes of uh, engagement and access uh, for physicians and patients include the telephone, include secure messaging, include patient portals, include telemedicine, include uh, remote patient monitoring, and the list can go on. And things that haven't even been invented yet. Communication, same thing. You know, it's it's uh, telephone, text, live streaming, uh, thing, uh, FaceTime, stuff like that. Well, it's interesting. Um, we, I, we actually dropped an article um, this past week, and there's a link in there talking about journey mapping and the importance for practice managers to to do the patient journey map and exactly how to do it. And it kind of sounds a little bit like that, right? You have multimodal. You want to take a look at all your impacts and and then follow it all the way through. So great alignment here. So last time we talked about access and the varied ways that you can uh, utilize that in your practice. And so this episode, we want to get granular on reimbursement models and payer contracting. Coming up next after this teaser alert, um, we're going to cover physician compensation, but we're going to stick with uh, some reimbursement models and payer contracting in, in this episode An important point in preparing to succeed in value-based care is getting alignment of your revenue streams and your workflows and your physician and provider compensation and incentives. All of those things have to line up uh, so that you're not fighting against yourself and trying to get things done. And I think it's important, too, for those practice leaders to make sure that they have the framework for the providers to be successful in what you just stated, right? So so everything's aligned. Absolutely. And, you know, focusing on access, as discussed in our previous episode, is going to help 
lay the groundwork for that, but we're going to discuss some other important workflows in some other episodes to come as well. But we need to talk about pair contracting now because that's going to help solidify the blueprint for structuring your practice workflows and processes to succeed in value-based care. So let's talk about that today with pair contracting. The first concept to grasp is that an organization really doesn't want to jump directly from a strictly fee-for-service model to a full risk model, meaning upside and downside risk on a premium or benchmark dollars tied to a cohort of the population. If I am speaking French or Greek or Hungarian to you, go back and listen to our first episode and that'll all make sense. But there's a progression or a spectrum of movement toward full risk. And it's best to follow that progression to ensure success. It's especially not leapfrogging multiple uh, places on that spectrum to get right from fee-for-service to full risk. Katila, you spoke with Ren Kieber and Lisa Soroka. Ren's a consultant with EMG and Lisa's a consultant with Marblehead. They've been in previous episodes of what we've done. But let's listen to what they had to say in their discussion about this spectrum. If you could take us through a fee-for-service into shared savings, a lot of the audience that we have, these terms are new to them. Sure. I'll start just to give that high-level overview um, and uh, just give a brief description of kind of the common uh, payment models on the value spectrum. I would say that the most basic form of value-based payment that around you know, pretty much as long as fee-for-service reimbursement has been around is, is pay-for-performance, um, you know, which is effectively uh, a quality uh, measure set mm-hmm. and some incentive dollars associated with managing quality. Um, that might be basic disease management or uh, quality measures associated with uh, you know, the care plan compliance, whether it's medications or what have you. Sliding a bit more advanced down the spectrum, you might run into shared savings, which you mentioned, uh, which is effectively starting to introduce a financial component to a, a value model uh, where basically the, uh, the reimbursement mechanism is still usually at least built on a fee-for-service basis, but start to compare how are we saving dollars and where are we saving dollars, and if the total cost of care for a certain population starts to go down, the idea is that those uh, dollars would be shared between the payer and the provider that's managing the care. And sometimes we see shared savings payments uh, applied to professional services, professional fees in a, in a physician setting. Sometimes it includes hospital expenditures. Um, you know, the Medicare shared savings program, which is really the original mainstream shared savings payment model, uh, includes total cost of care that that uh, includes you know facility fees and, and the hospital side as well as physicians even though the physicians are generally responsible for saving those dollars uh, sliding a bit further down the spectrum you know you start to see uh, mechanisms that introduce some alignment around uh, you know downside risks or shared losses uh, kind of the counter uh, balance to shared savings would be if the expenditures, increase, you know, period over period, whether it's year over year or what have you, then um, there'd be some expectation that at least a portion of that uh, is offset by a payment from the provider network or provider side, provider organization, uh, back up to the payer, kind of true up some of the downside 
uh, components um, of losses, uh, then we kind of get into more advanced uh, arrangements, uh, bundle payments for specialty services, uh, capitation either globally or by specialty, uh, and so forth. And we can probably spend you know some time there too if you want uh, talking about some of those more advanced uh, payment models. But that's kind of the high level view, anyways. I see it. Some health plans, you know, commercial plans in particular, have started to introduce their own vernacular, uh, and uh, as they've dialogued with their provider networks around value. Um, so sometimes there's kind of other terms used to describe those payment mechanisms, but generally that's, those are the big, those are the big buckets. In particular related to primary care, what is happening um, that we're seeing is it's tending at this point in value-based. If you're going to jump into some of the more advanced models and some, you know, states, they're pushing that Medicaid in particular is pushing it um, because they're, they're sort of, they're moving away from the lower risk pieces and saying, no, no, time to go to, you know, um, higher risk levels. But at the same time, the primary care physicians need to be much more involved, need to be much more controlling is the word that I'd use uh, in those models. Someone has to drive the ship and basically you're not going to get a specialist who's going to drive the ship for everybody that's really what the primary care docs are there to do. And so it does increase, while I'd say it increases their role and their workload, which is tough and, and a lot of headache around some in some of the practices for that. At the same time, it could incre- and really increase the reward for them uh, to be able to do that. So that's what I would add. So there you have it. There are the basics of the spectrum uh, of value-based care laid out for us. There's fee-for-service, there's pay-for-performance and pay-for-quality, there's shared savings, uh, then there's risk of premium either through bundle payments or through capitation. I think they did a great job of laying that out for us so we can all sort of speak the same language here. I also want to reemphasize something we've said before, but they mentioned it as well. And that's having the the primary care physician or primary care provider, the PCP, as the captain of the ship. We've used quarterback, we've used offensive coordinator. I think captain of the ship is a, is a great one too, because again, on a large ship, a complex vessel, the captain isn't the one steering or uh, running the engines or fixing the meals or things like that. But that person coordinates all those efforts and they know that we're going to go from point A to point B. And these are the things that need to happen to get us there. And these are the people around me and the, the boat, the ship that are going to make that happen. It's so important. We've heard it said before. And honestly, after hearing the breakout, I hope our audience understands value-based care. I want them to understand what it's not. And it's not just doing additional incentive work and additional payments. So we talk to people all the time and they say, oh, yes, I do value-based care. But it's more than that. It's it's a true culture shift and has many layers and there's many steps to take. And, and to your point, uh, the provider has to have things off of uh, them so that they can um, truly steer that ship. Joni Wyatt with Kasuv goes into more detail on some models and incentives, and she frames it a bit differently. I want to make note of how she talks about setting things up now to succeed in the future. And I think it's really important to to realize that by adding in value-based care, 
it's not just a switch to be flipped. Yeah, so so those incentives, I call them carrot-only incentives. You know, here where we live, our, you know, we, our Blue Cross provider offers incentives for certain levels of um, quality outcomes. Those are the easiest places to start um, because there's no risk there. But as people become more familiar with kind of the general idea of I'm investing time and effort in my patient today to get reimbursed more or in a different way down the road, they start to think about the other opportunities that are out there. And again, it's, you know, it started with a, I'm going to try this out a few years ago and those kind of those leaders. And now it's almost becoming a necessity, particularly in primary care, because, you know, we're, we're not seeing any more money coming on that fee schedule. So if you're going to make a go with this, you're going to have to um, participate. Shared savings models are the next biggest thing. Um, what's interesting about the shared savings models is that um, I talked about the migration of primary care to um, employment. Oddly enough, the physician uh, run or the shared savings models that are really run or governed majority-wise by physicians are doing so much better than the ones that are governed by some other entity. So it's an interesting idea because the, uh, the thought is, well, if that's the case, then typically those are independent providers. And so does that mean in the future we'll see some sort of weird shift back to independence? Because the reason that they all became employed was because of the difficulties of getting paid through fee-for-service and the complications. But if all of a sudden the model doesn't look like that anymore, eight, 10 years from now, then the benefit may not be employment anymore. We may see a shift. We're seeing a lot of independent groups that are sort of funding um, a bundled payment for a particular service, a particular type of procedure um, where clearly that is something that is a high expense for them as an um, as a payer or if they're self-insured, it's a high expense for the people they are insuring. And so they're able to then manage that a little better by identifying high quality, low cost providers, contracting them specifically, and then entering into some kind of bundled payment model. Those providers only, um, you know, would be, the, they're, they're sort of a captive audience, but they often get paid less than they would have on individual basis but they will actually end up with a lot more of these patients, which means they should be able to become a little more efficient. Um, I'm a little torn about that because I said, in, in essence, we're, we're asking people to work more for less money, which goes back to this whole volume thing that I've been saying is kind of going away. So it kind of goes against everything we've been talking about. But in some cases, it is, it is in fact still driving cost savings and it, should also be driving, if done appropriately, driving better outcomes because you can control the type of providers, the services they're providing, um, and the cost. So it's almost like you're guaranteeing an outcome, both from a clinical and financial standpoint, through that type of model. Those have not been wildly popular, except for very specific specialties. Um, and we don't see those in primary care because that obviously doesn't make much sense. Primary care physicians may participate, you know, as like a, a preferred provider in those programs, but they are not going to be 
um, driving nor a at-risk provider in any way. You know, that was an interesting insight from Joni there that the physician-led VBC models tend to do better than others. Uh, there's probably a whole podcast in that, um, but I, I just want to make the point that when the physicians get engaged and providers get engaged in a value-based care model, it's got a whole lot more chance of success than if some non-clinician is just, you know, from high on, uh, from up on high is saying, this is what we're going to do. Uh, the, the former model has a better way, a uh, much better chance of success. And we see a lot of the dyad models because of that, right? Like aligning a, a physician leader with an administrative leader. Those are the strategies that you see the most success. You know, the leaders have to be a part. Absolutely. But even a, a physician leader, if, if that person does not engage the, the, the frontline docs and get them to understand the, it's, it's going to fail too. So I, I think it's a, I think that's a step in the right direction because, you know, we physicians are an odd lot. We, we trust doctors more than we trust other people. So having a, a physician in a leadership position can help toward physician engagement. There's still the work to be done in, in getting those docs engaged. And I think what I hear you saying is um, for those clinics out there, if you do have a physician leader, make sure you have a physician leader at the site as well. So it has to penetrate all the way down. I think that sometimes is missed. So shifting gears, you know, uh, Katilo, in episode one, we talked about determining uh, one's readiness for value-based care. Uh, and the concept of readiness is integral to starting down the payer contracting road. Um, you don't want to commit to something you're not ready to do. And, and that gets back to gets back to what I was saying earlier about people just sort of jumping right into full risk when they're not really ready. Because uh, I've seen that happen. And you, you do need to assess your readiness for where you are today and where can you be in the very near future so that you can align your payer contracting with that. In our intro episode to season two, we heard from Ren Kieber with ECG and Lisa Soroka from Marblehead talking about assessing your workflows before jumping into the value-based care pool to swim around. Well, here's some of that again, as well as some tactical advice on making those changes and refining processes. As we've stated a lot of times before, it's not so much about more work with value-based care as it is different work. It's only more if you add things without de-implementing the things that don't add or create value. So let's hear what they have to say. What specifically should practices be very aware of when they're looking at value-based care contracting? The biggest thing that I would advise, let's say it's a client of mine, to, to look at is they're evaluating potential change in their reimbursement, whether it's anywhere, it's on, anywhere on that spectrum, right? Is to look at the the additional workload and how to divide that up amongst either existing or new office staff. And that could include a redesign in how the physician practices, and that might include a technology component, uh, meaning that the EMR or the workflow that they have needs may need to change. But also, I think what Lisa was really getting at is the non-clinical staffing complement, which is becoming increasingly difficult in today's environment. And that might be as simple as uh, changing the uh, the way in which you schedule patients, um, you know, you might have to take uh, fewer twenty minute uh, appointment slots and start bumping some up because you're doing more screenings in the uh, you know in the primary care setting, as an example, and that's a you know condition of your 
contract, or it might be that the payer is going to provide you with chase lists of patients who have fallen out of the uh, system, uh, meaning they haven't been screened in a while, or they may need other uh, services or referrals, you need non-clinical staff to support that. Now, you asked about kind of what some of the differentiation between pay performance and shared savings, and then starting to manage downside risk. And then there's additional support staff that would be need that would need to be um, added, whether at the practice itself or within a network like an ACO. And that's to start managing. Well, what's happening with the patient once they're not in the office, or are they seeking you know uh, utilization outside of our practice setting? Um, and what is the financial impact of that? And do we agree with what the plan is telling us? about what's happening when the patient's not in our office. And so, you know, that's usually, a you know, at least a one or two full-time people that are focused on understanding the implications of patients' utilization patterns outside your, your office on your arrangement. So, you know, you might be at risk for the total cost of care in some of those more advanced models of, of VDP. Um, and you need to hire people or find people after your network or what have you. It, someone has to be doing that work to, to manage both the behavior of the patient. And, and sometimes there's, you know, outreach and education needs to occur, but then also understand the financial implications of those patient behaviors outside your, your office on your own contract um, and be able to forecast that and, and so forth. So there's also, you know, a clinical uh care delivery changes as well. Um, meaning you, you, you know, you have other ways that you may change your, your day-to-day practice patterns, um, based on what your new reality is on a VVP contract. Um, that may be different tomorrow than it is today. So I'd like to stop for a second and take in what they just said. Um, the impact of patients actions outside your office. That is why you need the payments to flow first and align your staffing needs and additional offerings for these such moments. Now, whether the payments actually need to flow first might be debatable, but you certainly need to have your revenue streams uh, aligned and set up so that you can uh, pay for services that might not necessarily be reimbursable, like some of the ones that they talked about. It's so hard, right? Cart before horse. How do you put... It's so difficult for clinics to be able to afford to hire the team if they don't have the reimbursement. And uh, and again, that's why we saw value-based care start with pay for performance, you know, start getting a little incentive money and then hopefully invest that back into the teams so you can get there. Which is why when you jump straight to full risk, you fail because you haven't, you haven't incrementally set up the things that you need to succeed overall in value-based care. Because sometimes you do need to hook the the team of horses up to the wagon before you actually have money to feed those horses. But making that happen can get you what you need to to then continue down the road. So let's go back to Ren and Lisa and hear what they uh, have to say uh, more about culture. What specifically, what are your no-gos? If you guys are working with clinics and they've started off on pay for performance and they're starting to share a little bit of risk and they start wanting to talk about downside risk, what's your guidance? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I look for as a, as a no-go is culture. Culture. Um, and that is such a soft answer. And I recognize that because, no, <laughs> you know, you might think, okay, we should be looking for technology 
capabilities or what have you, but it's actually more office culture and mindset of both the clinical and non-clinical teams at -hmm. that group um, to understand if they can change their mindset around how care is delivered and thus revenue is generated. Uh, And usually that culture shift is being driven externally. And then you find that uh, a certain cohort of, of groups kind of see that and really want to embrace it and really want to change and really want to say, you know, we know that, mm-hmm. um, you know, a widgetized payment system. And I, what I mean by that is fee for service isn't serving our patients well. And we really want to, we really want to change our mindset and be focused on preventive care mm-hmm. in a, in a truly preventive care way. Um, you know, not a fee for service way. Um, and, we're willing to challenge what we know about how we've delivered care for the past X number of years in order to transform the way that we interact with the payment system. And so that would be my no-go is if, if you, there's any, you know, reticence from leadership or uh, any concerns from uh, the nursing staff or your MA or, you know, who you're, it's, it's like, that's almost like a telltale sign that you may not even want to bother taking on more risk um, because you may ultimately um, spend dollars on some of the other areas and not actually change the way that you deliver care. And thus you leave, you know, you, you're kind of in a downside financial position. I just want to add one point there and interrupt Ren. Um, which is, again, on the alignment issue, can't emphasize enough. If you're doctors, and I'm, I put it right on them, if they're not in line with their staff yeah, or they want true. something, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, they're not going to get there because mm-hmm. their staff are the frontline people who are dealing with the patients the whole time. And do you guys look for uh, physician compensation incentive alignment? Is I, culture, that was your very first answer. And immediately I'm thinking it probably also comes down to how they're compensated, right? Because if you need the physician to lead, um, we're all incentivized. You know, that's what you do, right? right? You get your annual right. goals, you incentivize towards those annual goals. So what are your thoughts on physician compensation? Here's the thing is I kind of lump that in with culture because yeah. um, the way that you're generating revenue on your physician comp, comp plan um, as an individual physician, is part of how you want to practice medicine. And to me, that's kind of a cultural thing. Now, the larger the organization is, so if we're talking about a health system that has a thousand physicians and lots of medical groups, um, you know, that is a, it, it, you can just, it's a redesign, right? And, th- and that culture lives in the C-suite of that, of that enterprise. Um, and if you were to make changes to your physician comp that align with your value-based payment objectives and some faction of the physician enterprise doesn't like that, well, you're, they can, they'll be turnover. There'll be attrition and turnover right. and you'll get the people who are culturally aligned because they recognize the value in their incentive alignment there. There are, there are I think, a number of things that are associated with that kind of cultural um, mindset that I, a physician comp is very much one of them. And frankly not just physician comp, but also mid-level and front staff incentive alignment is important as well. Um, And so I often see organizations, particularly ones that have a big physician enterprise, redesign the physician incentives, but don't get down to what their nurses and MAs and other support staff are incentivized to do and um, create 
some perverse incentives between the same organization. Totally agree with what you're saying, but I think there's another component to it, which is it's the um, too often all of us think that incentives are only financial. Incentives can also be very effective when they're non-financial. And maybe you could argue well, it comes back to financial, but for instance, you know, time off. Uh, job satisfaction. Has, it, it, <laughs> job satisfaction. It, interestingly, and this was with a very recent, huge, big health system, um, the whole drivers around uh, lower level staff dissatisfaction weren't financial. It, it, it wasn't going to take much financially uh, to change their minds. It was really related to non-financial and um, some, we made some, you know, not difficult working condition changes. And, you know, these folks just didn't want to work necessarily in the conditions in which they were working. And then in other practices, what was really important um, besides the finances were really the re- part of it was recognition. No matter what your financial model looks like, whatever your right. contracts look like, the people want to be satisfied in the jobs that they right. have. So as you transform away from um, fee-for-service to value, you start recognizing people for the types of contributions that mm-hmm. contribute actively toward value objectives. Closed referrals out to social care organizations, um, mm-hmm. the you know the small wins around keeping someone on medication compliance mm-hmm. so that they don't end up in the ER because you know their hypertension went out of control, or you know these things that generally you might not associate with recognition of say a mid level staffer, mm-hmm. you know changing that cultural component in alignment with the physician comp redesign which you've outline, I think is is important. Ensuring you recognize your network and their contributions. Wow, what a statement there. That's some wise advice. I agree that yes, that is some definite wise advice. I, and there's something else that they said too, that I want to highlight to paraphrase something to the effect of no matter what your financial model looks, looks like, whatever your contracts look like, people want to be satisfied in the jobs that they have. And I, that's such an important point that uh, practices and organizations often overlook. And in this context, not only thinking about that in terms of the people that work in your office or within your organization, but also outside in your network and the contributors that you have, making sure that they have a sense of, of satisfaction with their job. But certainly it's got to be emphasized in the in the practice. And it kind of goes back to a statement you made a few podcasts ago about it's not what's on the walls, it's what's in the halls. And are those people in the halls satisfied with what they're doing? Or have you aligned your contracting in such a way that you're just irritating the frip out of people when they're trying to do their work? Absolutely. And there's another concept surrounding contracting in your network, not just internally, but externally. And we can dive into you know thinking about considerations outside the office. I think it, it's all aligned, right? How you're taking care of people in, how your uh, what your culture is like, as as Lisa and Ren were talking about, and then what you know the preferred provider network, but how that feels. Um, Lisa and Ren had some thoughts around that as well. So let's listen to that as well. There's another whole new element when you're in value-based and equity-based care, 
And that's the link that you have to the community services that and organizations that are available that can take um, really time-consuming tasks out of your realm and put them into someone else's realm, and then you're not financially responsible for them either. This is these are particularly critical when you're looking at the um, lower income population and you're looking at the the Medicaid, but it also really can affect, it's really Medicare too. I shouldn't be just, yeah, I was going to say more so than commercial. This this is more, but you know, the population in general is high. It has a high percentage of Medicare. Once you add them to Medicaid um, patients and those patients need extra resources that if you don't have the proper affiliations and links in place with community organizations, and it's their social needs, their, you know, can also help with the behavioral needs, not as much, but it's more social. If you don't have those in place, then your time and effort as a, in the primary care practice is just going to increase significantly. And it's not going to help the patient. What I think I'm yeah. hearing you say, Lisa, just to bring it back to Katila's uh, question yeah. about overhead. Overhead. Yeah. It, someone has to manage those relationships, exactly. right? Someone has to find the referral uh, partners. Someone has to manage those arrangements. If you're in a in a risk bearing BBP contract, right. someone has to understand if you're going to be as a medical group paying for some of those non clinical social Absolutely. determinant services yeah. and administer those payments. Right. So um, that's where the overhead piece comes into that. It's like finding yeah. the network that you're building your own you know referral pathways and and managing those. That's another. You and know, maintaining those relationships. Relationships, right. Because it's much easier for you as a provider, the physician, to turn around and say to the MA, um, hey, we need to refer for social services for... Right, food. Food. Yeah. We have food insecurity here. Or or what about transportation? This patient it cannot be driving, can't get to appointments. How are we going to facilitate that? All of those services are honestly better handled within community organizations. You just have to figure out who you're going to affiliate with to get that set up. And then you can turn that over and that's going to make your staff much more efficient and able to take care of more patients. And frankly, it's also going to really increase health, increase quality of care. It's interesting to me how Ren and Lisa uh, thought about this because I also spoke with Andrea Herto. She is an independent consultant. She was formerly the chief value officer of a large value-based healthcare system. And she has a lot to say on downstream networks. Let's listen to what she has to say. A lot of that has to do with alignment, um, aligning thought processes, aligning resources, aligning um, workflows. Where I'd like to go with this is talking about the alignment of compensation and contracting, because we were talking about that. So when you're thinking about getting into value-based care, what are the starting points for getting um, alignment with uh, physician and provider compensation, for getting alignment with your contracting with payers? I know it's two separate lines of thought there, but I do think they overlap a lot. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Andrea. 
Yeah. So it's really, you know, that concept of upstream contracting, which is the payer contracting, and then downstream contracting, which um, is everybody but yourself who is uh, managing the care of the patient population that you're at risk for. Um, so, you know, it's funny, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and it's a chicken and an egg on the uh, on the payer contracting side, because there's two, I would say, fundamental um, pieces that um, have to fall into place. And one is you need to have a, what I would say, decent size membership to take risk on. And, and, and there's lots of thoughts around what that was. But in order to, I would say, negotiate a fairly favorable contract with the payers, and you can negotiate, these are negotiable contracts, uh, you need to have a sizable membership where it's meaningful to the payer to want to lean in with you. Um, you also have to be able to de demonstrate a history of strong performance, both in the quality and total cost of care management space, period. Those things coming together. And then obviously those contracts help you grow and get more membership and just benefit the overall um, uh, relationship. You know, you talk about member panel size. I would assume that in a commercial contract where the margins might be slimmer, you need a larger panel size than you would say for fee-for-service Medicare if you're looking at value-based care contracts. Yeah, because there's a lot of variability when we go into um, commercial. Number one, uh, more flexible benefit design. So patients, less um, management capabilities of where that patient goes. We all like choice. We're seeing it in the marketplace. And if you want to go to a destination hospital, for anything that's in network, you can do that, right? So there's a that that's going that's going to hurt your ability to manage the population. Uh, also, guess what? Not all hospitals the care cost is the same, and that's the biggest variable in commercial risk versus Medicare. Sure, there are differences, but we know on the physician fee schedule, it's minimal compared to the kinds of variances you see in the commercial space in price. A DRG is a DRG from one hospital it, when you're in the same region I mean, it's not going to vary that much maybe from a teaching hospital to a, a community hospital but otherwise yeah right right and since you dropped an acronym dr hart i'm going to make you define it diagnosis related <laughs> group uh it's it's uh, how how hospitals get paid based upon the diagnosis that they're treating so Andrea, are we have listeners of all aspects. So we try to we try to take it all the way down as far as we can go, but we we really do want to get tactical. So I, I don't want to stop you there, but I had to call it out when I heard the acronym. I was like, I got to pull that. Out. Yeah, she's going to call me out. She'll call me out. <laughs> so really it was about yeah, performers in your partnerships. I think we wanted to spend some time talking about what we call downstream partnerships, which is um, you know, Ultimately, and, and really taking a step forward and simplifying, um, I, I, I love to make this simplified because risk is so complicated. And the reality is, if you are a risk-bearing network, you are generally getting prepaid, whether it's officially prepaid through a capitation or really just being held to a budget of spend and cost. And the drivers um, behind that are obviously improved quality and great outcomes number one, always patient experience important. We've got to maintain our membership, right? But that, but then the cost and the reality is, especially as a primary care physician involved in the management of this, 
You know, another important consideration in how you approach value-based care is who's pushing for the change. Is it an internal opportunity recognition and a strategic move to value-based care? Or has your hand been forced by payers who are saying, do this or get paid less? What's the why behind the shift for you? folks out there listening uh, to the podcast. I mean, for any reason, though, there's going to be the need to align workflows and financial priorities. Katila, you talked about this with Rin and Lisa, and you know they had some, some good insights on how to deal with this based upon that why, whether it's self-imposed or payer-imposed, externally imposed. So let's give a listen. You start moving over into shared risk where you start sharing some of that risk and you get into that advanced care. So so truly navigating that contracting process. And a lot of clinics, they don't even have their contracts. So a lot of them, it's let's get your contracts out. A lot of them are on auto renewal. Let's, let's really start digging into those. And then for some of these clinics, they start hearing these terms that they just don't get. They're running practices. They're like you guys have been talking about. They've been working on culture. They've been working on operations. They start hearing things like CINs, ACOs, PMPM, MSSP. They start hearing all of these things. This contract language is at them. What is, how do you go from really not being responsible for risk? These payers have been like baby stepping you in to that next phase of really taking on risk. What do you do in that moment with that contract in your hand? Where would you start? I guess the big question that I would ask myself and, and, you know, this organization is what's the drive, what's the impetus for this transformation Mm -hmm. and how do you align a contract, a piece of paper with that objective? So if you're being told, you know, take it or leave it. We're transitioning you to a value-based contract and, you know, you're going to take some downside risk here if you want to continue to be part of our payer network. Well, that's a very different impetus than uh, something that's, you know, maybe self-started when the group says, you know, we want to move off a fee-for-service. We think it's the right thing to do. And we're going to try to get the payer on the same page as us. I mean, those are two very different ways to move off of fee-for-service contracts and, uh, you know, into value contracts, um, particularly downside risk contracts. components. So if the impetus is the payer is telling us we need to move here and, you know, frankly, Medicare is signaling in not so subtle terms that they're going to be moving everybody to some component of value, right? The education that needs to occur needs to arm, you know, the decision makers with the right level of, um, you know, of a baseline understanding to evaluate whether or not this is a risk worth taking. Um, and I am going to bring up again, kind of that support staff role, um, because, you know, generally a physician that is looking to make a, a, you know, a transition, let's say it's in a small group where the physicians, you know, one of the equity partners of this group and, you know, it's, it's him and his, you know, three or four clinical, you know, practice partners, but also business partners have to decide, um, you know, they're going to need some level of, um, of analysis of what the payer's offering in that case um, to decide, you know, what they're um, willing to accept as well as how they're going to change um, their practice to align with what the payer's putting in front of them. So that might be retrospective analysis of, you know, their patient population for this payer. Um, you know, if the payer is putting in front of them some 
uh, new kind of new design uh, arrangement that's kind of maybe proprietary to that particular payer, then, you know, you got to really um, get on the phone with the payer, uh, you know, provider relations rep at the payer and really understand, well, what does this mean? You know, I, I don't, this isn't a term I understand. Um, you know, a lot of what I do and Lisa does, you know, as advisors is to help organizations think this through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, some, some of the smaller organizations, um, which I think is more your question, you know, have to figure it out on their own and they have to educate themselves and empower themselves to understand what this might mean. Um, you know, understand the alphabet soup and, uh, you know, and try to, to, uh, to work on it with a payer partner, but the other side of the spectrum where it's self, um, you know, it's, it's a self-imposed change, right. Where a, a physician group, let's say, is deciding they want to move away from fee-for-service. They want to move toward this. They're the ones pushing the payer partner. Well, then it's a very different, it's a different reality for them, right? Because they're the ones who are self-starting this change within their own practice. And so you have a much better runway there. In that case, you're not being handed a contract to, to, and, and said, you know, you got to accept this by the end of the month or you're out of our network or what, you know, whatever. They, that's an extreme example. But um you know they're they're um, they're able to bring their um, their organization along and also understand the terms of engagement between them and their plan partners um, one or more as they're moving to to downside risk. And the last point that I'll make is, let's say that this organization is self-starting and they're saying we want to we want to move away from the status quo. You know they they. The, a, you know, a simple search of the uh, accountable care organizations, clinically integrated networks, whatever label you want to apply to a physician network um, may serve them well, um, because as a, the smaller the group is, the less resources they're going to have available to educate themselves, analyze the contract, work through some of the decision points. But a, a network partner may help do that for them, right? Take their own data uh, and give them, you know, some uh, opportunities and and um, and areas for concern. Should they move to a downside risk environment? Uh, and so that's not. I'm not trying to advertise that you know physician networks or provider networks are the end all be all, um, but they can be very helpful to smaller organizations in learning that alphabet soup and um, you know kind of understanding if we were to want to make this change because we think it's the right thing to do. Let's find a partner. Um, that might be in the form of a CIN or an ACO to help us make that transition. I love how much you're you're really focusing on that clinical care delivery change being part of the culture. I think it's absolutely mandatory if you're not thinking about everybody being in aligned. Uh, uh, I forget who said it, but all the oars are in the water. They're just not necessarily paddling in the right direction. So, Katila, you had a conversation with Craig Worland's Southeast Primary Care Partners, um, and he says some similar things to what Rin and Lisa had to say, but goes beyond that. So, in this next bit, he's going to talk more on aligning priorities and contracting, uh, and also in monetizing uh, your efforts to improve outcomes and decrease medical expense, which I think is a, a place a lot of folks forget to go. They build some of these programs where they forget um how to really leverage that with the payers to get paid. He also introduces the term medical loss ratio or MLR. So let's hear uh, Craig's take on these topics. What do you do from a contracting? And uh, then I want to talk about compensation, but tell me about how you approach the risk contracting part of it. So I think fundamentally, and and this is, um, 
It's a mindset shift in that uh, so often the provider and the payer are just at odds with each other. And, um, and, you know, healthcare is this constant tension between how much can I extract from the, the payer who makes their bottom line on how much they don't pay to me as the provider. And then I'm the provider and my bottom line comes from how much I can pull from the payer. So it just creates this natural tension. You have to, you have to almost throw that mindset out. Um, when you, when you go into a value-based contract and, and realize that you're, you as the provider are, especially as a primary care provider, you're functioning much more like the payer, but you have so much control, which is what we love about it. Um, and so you now are focused on how much can we avoid in terms of downstream unnecessary spend? And that's how we're going to make our money First, how much can we do to this patient in front of that's in front of us? and bill this number of CPT codes that will then result in a, a higher net revenue per visit or, or whatever you call it, that's, that's out the window. And that's not what you're focused on. You're focused on, if I can prevent that patient from going to the emergency room, cut it in half. We have patients that, that visit the emergency room 30 times a year. If we cut that in half, that's tens of thousands of dollars coming back to us um, on the bottom line. And that's what the payers want too. So when, when you go into the contract, you have to go in saying, listen, we're talking about wanting the same things here. Now then to get really technical or not super technical, cause I'm not qualified, but there are certain levers you've got to pull. So you want to focus on the uh, MLR, the medical loss ratio, or the, some people call it their medical cost fund or their medical expense ratio, whatever they call it. Um, and that varies by payer. That's the percentage of the total premium dollar that uh, you're targeted in, in spending. So oftentimes it's somewhere in that 82, 83 to 90% range. And so they'll say, let's just call it 85%. If you spend less than 85%, then you get to keep a percentage of that. Or, or, or if we spend less than 85%, then you as the primary care provider get to keep a, a percentage of that. You have to focus on, on that percentage and, and you have to ask the question, okay, what historically have I been performing at? You cannot take the, you know, off the shelf agreement that says we'll, we'll hit you at eighty five percent because if you've been historically performing at ninety two percent, then you know that really doesn't do you any good. You've got a seven percent delta before you even get into the money there. I love what you just said. It's so tactical. Don't take the off the shelf agreement. Find out your historicals. Are you relying on the payer to give you that information, or is your internal team doing? I'm just curious, like how somebody can d- take that advice that you just gave. Yeah. So it depends on the size. Um, we do, you know, we've, we've made some pretty significant investments in technology that allows us to, to see the claims. And so we can, we can kind of, if you will, fact check, but your first source is going to be the payer. Um, they're obligated to show you what you made. They're not going to, they want to partner with you as well, because again, you're aligned. If you're saying, I want to take, you know, I want to, sh- I want to share in some of the savings, you're telling them, I want to save you more money. And they, that, that is, what they want you to do. So they're going to show you what, what you're at. And then if, if you were at 92%, well, maybe set your target, see, try to contract the way you set your target at 90% or at 92 and then stair step it down in subsequent years. So we're going to, you know, we're going to earn this thing together. The other major thing you need to ask for just from contracting is the, the DOFR, the division of financial responsibility. There's, that's where a lot of games get played. Um, and, and not, and it can get played on both sides. This is not a shot at, the, at, at our payer partners, but things will get put in there that you may not have control over, like benefit design and some other things that that the 
the payers feel like they need to do to attract their customers. And you may be perfectly fine having silver sneakers expenses hit your medical expense ratio and, and thus, you know, kind of dinging you on it. Make that decision internally, um, but ask for that dofer. Ask for that and, and make sure that you are um, uh, working through that and understand it. The other pieces to this is, is really understanding. So in, in especially your Medicare Advantage contracts, um, the way your, your top line is adjusted is through risk adjustment. And so getting really clear on how your and again, there's a lot of games that get played around risk adjustment. And again, back to the contracting standpoint, understand how and when that risk adjustment factor or RAF is applied and how any sort of retroactive sweeps occur and at what point during the year those occur. Um, so that you can under, you know, so that you can get really clear on, um, okay, we've coded everybody. July through December. Now, when does that actually apply? And do we get any credit in that period, July to December, or is that credit applied to us in the future year? So just having those open conversations with the payers is really important. And I think too, it's also why payers want you to get your annual wellness visits within the first six months. It applies to that RAF sweep. And a lot of people don't make that connection. And so for us to help practices understand, here's why it's a great initiative. It helps you proactively get patients on the schedule, do everything you need to do from a, from a prevention standpoint, but also this is your opportunity to also get them coded. And all of that works together. You're spot on, spot on. Craig gave us some real wise words on making sure we are aligning with payers uh, by controlling spend and understanding the why behind doing things uh, like doing annual wellness visits. And we've talked about aligning and understanding the why and a lot of different things. And, and I don't think you can say it too much because that's that's one of the key components to change management and uh, without understanding uh, the why behind you know, setting up different workflows, de-implementing certain workflows, things like that. Uh, the the boots on the ground are going to struggle with the concepts uh, and uh, are going to tend to want to just do what they've always done because that's where their comfort uh, lies. But you have to think in terms of of a payer on some of this too, as you especially as you move further down the road, uh, but down the spectrum in value based care and controlling spend and what can I do? What are the things that I can do in the office that are going to have a positive impact on medical expense? You know, I, I think it's also interesting, Katila, um, and, and you, you in your interview with him, you reacted the same way I, I kind of did too, in, in the part of don't take the first contract. Mm -hmm. And I think so often. Bullies, as they can sometimes be, especially the big boys, um, you don't have to always take what the payer first puts out there, uh, especially if you have set yourself up with workflows and processes that create value and can help them control their spend. Um, they're going to listen to you. They're going to take what you have to say. They'll negotiate too, but don't take that first one. I like how Craig calls it a, a payer partner. I think that's that's wise. I, and I also think if you're not big enough, align with somebody so that you are big enough and that's saturation in the market. Well, that's true too. I mean, if if you have 12 members of of one payer's plan in your in your practice, you're probably not going to have a lot of leverage in a conversation with them on contracting. Whereas if you have 12,000, it's different story. Uh, even shoot, even 1200 if you're a small practice. 
and doing a great job because if you're if you're doing all of these things, the payers want to work with you. Absolutely. You know, the other the other thing, and this is a teaser for later in the season, uh, Craig was talking about risk adjustment. We're going to have more on that in an episode really toward the end of season two. So stay tuned for that. So in this episode, uh, we've included costs to consider. Um, we've, we again, <laughs> payer partners, thinking about them as a true partner, aligning the incentives, um, contracts with your initiatives, ensuring you're thinking about value-based care as more than just additional efforts, um, but also additional reimbursement and what you do with that. <laughs> and then truly embracing the culture shift of value-based care, especially that care outside your office. In our next episode, we're going to dive into provider compensation. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. We'd like to answer your questions. So please follow the link in our show notes to share any thoughts or questions you might have, and we'll get back to you. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our value-based care and our practice leaders newsletters at businessofprimarycare.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen. 